Chapter 17 Henry Venn, The Ministry Henry Venn was vicar of Huddersfield from 1759 to 1771. These twelve years were undoubtedly the period of his greatest public usefulness. In the full vigor of his bodily and mental strength, with his mind thoroughly made up about all the leading doctrines of the gospel, and with his heart thoroughly set on his master's business, he entered his new sphere with distinct power and acceptance, and soon made full proof of his ministry. 2 Timothy 4, 5. If measured by years alone, his time there was certainly short, due to his failing health. But if measured by action and usefulness, like Edward VI's reign, it was very long indeed. For more than one reason, there is a special interest related to Venn's ministry at Huddersfield. For one thing, he was the only one of the seven spiritual heroes of the eighteenth century who ever became minister of a large town population. Wesley and Whitefield were itinerant evangelists whose parish was the world. Romaine was the minister of a little confined district in the city. Rowlands lived and died among Welsh mountains, Grimshaw on Yorkshire moors, and Berridge on Bedfordshire plains. Venn was the only man among the seven who could number his lawful parishioners by thousands. For another thing, he was the first evangelical clergyman in the Church of England who proved that the manufacturing masses of our fellow countrymen can be thoroughly reached by the gospel. He proved by demonstration that the working classes in our great northern towns can be reached with the gospel just like other people if they are approached in the proper way. He proved that the preaching of the cross meets the needs of all Adam's children, and that it can turn the world upside down, Acts 17, 6, among looms and coal mines, just as thoroughly as it can in watering places, country parishes, or metropolitan chapels. We all know this now. Nobody would dream of denying it. We must remember, though, that it was not so well known in the eighteenth century. Let honor be given where honor is due. The first clergyman in England who properly proved the power of evangelical aggression on a manufacturing parish was Henry Venn. A clergyman's work in a large town district in the eighteenth century was very unlike what it is in these times. A vast quantity of religious machinery, with which everyone is familiar now, did not exist in those days. City missions, scripture readers societies, pastoral aid societies, Bible women, and mothers' meetings were utterly unknown. Even schools for the children of the poor were few, and were comparatively inadequate and utterly out of proportion to the needs of the population. The evangelical minister of a large town a hundred years ago was almost entirely limited to the use of one weapon the good old apostolic plan of unceasing preaching both publicly and from house to house, Acts 20.20, was nearly the only method that he could use. He was forced to be preeminently a man of one thing and a soldier with one weapon, a perpetual preacher of God's Word. It can be argued that the minister of the eighteenth century did more good with his one weapon than many do in modern times with their immense supply of methods and devices. My own personal opinion is that we have too much lost sight of apostolic simplicity in our ministerial work. We need more men of one thing and one book, men who make everything secondary to preaching the Word. 
It is hard to have many irons in the fire at once, and to keep them all hot. It's quite possible to make an idol of church methods and machinery, and for the sake of it to neglect the pulpit. These things should be carefully remembered in forming an estimate of Venn's ministry at Huddersfield. Let us never forget that he went to his great Yorkshire parish, like David against Goliath, with nothing but his sling and stones and an unwavering faith in the power of God. He went there with no sympathizing London committee to correspond with him, encourage him, and assist him with funds. He went there with no long-tried plans and approved methods of evangelical strategies in his pocket. He went there with nothing but his Bible and his Master at his side. Keeping these things in mind, I think the following extracts from his admirable biography by his son, John Venn, should particularly interest us. As soon as he began to preach at Huddersfield, the church became crowded to such an extent that many were not able to enter. Many people became deeply impressed with concern about their mortal souls. People flocked from the distant hamlets, inquiring what they must do to be saved. He found them to be generally utterly ignorant of their state by nature and of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. His heart yearned over his flock, and he was never satisfied with his labors among them, even though he labored among them to a degree ruinous to his health. On Sundays he would often address the congregation from the pulpit, briefly explaining the psalms and the lessons. He would frequently begin the service with a solemn and most impressive address, exhorting the worshippers to consider themselves as in the presence of the great God of heaven, whose eye was upon them in a special manner as they drew near to him in his own house. His whole soul was engaged in preaching, and since at this time he only used brief notes in the pulpit, much room was left to indulge the feelings of compassion, tenderness, and love with which his heart overflowed towards his people. During the week he regularly visited the different communities in his extensive parish, and gathering some of the inhabitants at a private house, he addressed them with a kindness and earnestness that moved every heart. A letter written in 1762 to Lady Huntingdon informs us that in that year, beside his stated work on the Lord's Day, the vicar of Huddersfield generally preached eight or ten sermons during the week in distant parts of the parish, when many came to hear who would not come to church. It also mentions that his outdoor preaching was found especially useful. His grandson, Henry Venn, has gathered some additional facts about his Huddersfield ministry that are well worth recording. He tells us, He endeavored to preserve the utmost reverence and devotion in public worship, constantly pressing this matter upon his people. He read the service with particular solemnity and effect. The Te Deum, especially, was recited with a triumphant air and tone that often produced a noticeable sensation throughout the whole congregation. He succeeded in persuading the people to join in the responses and singing. Twice in the course of his ministry at Huddersfield he preached a course of sermons in explanation of the liturgy. On one occasion, as he went up to church, he found a considerable number of people in the churchyard waiting for the commencement of the service. He stopped to address them, saying that he hoped they were preparing their hearts for the service of God, and that he himself had much to do to keep his heart in a right frame. He concluded by waving his hand for them to go into the church before him, waiting until they had all entered. He took much effort to catechize the younger members of his congregation, mainly those who were above fourteen years of age. The number was often very large, 
and he wrote out for their use a very extensive explanation of the church catechism in the way of questions and answers. The immediate effects produced by Henry Venn's preaching appear to have been remarkably deep, powerful, and permanent. Both his son and grandson have supplied some striking illustrations of them. His son says, A club in a neighboring market town, composed mainly of Socinians, having heard much criticism and ridicule bestowed upon the preaching of Henry Venn, sent two of their ablest members to hear this strange preacher learn his absurdities, and provide matters of amusement for the next meeting. They accordingly went to Huddersfield Church, but upon entering they were greatly struck by seeing the multitude that was assembled together, and by observing the devotion of their behavior and their concern to attend the worship of God. When Mr. Venn ascended the pulpit, he addressed his flock as usual with a solemnity and dignity that showed him to be deeply interested in the work in which he was engaged. The subsequent earnestness of his preaching and the solemn appeals he made to the conscience deeply impressed the visitors, so much so that as they left the church one of them observed, Surely God is in this place. There is no matter for laughter here. This gentleman immediately called on Mr. Venn, told him who he was and the purpose for which he had come, and earnestly begged his forgiveness and his prayers. He requested Mr. Venn to visit him without delay. And he left the Socinian congregation. From that time to the hour of his death, he was one of Mr. Venn's most faithful and devoted friends. Another gentleman, the late William Hay, Esquire of Leeds, highly respectable for his character, talents, and piety, often used to go to Huddersfield to hear Mr. Venn preach, and he assured me that once, as he was returning home with a close friend, neither of them said anything to each other until they came within a mile of Leeds, a distance of fifteen miles, so deeply were they impressed by the truths they had heard and the manner in which they had been delivered. Henry Venn's grandson visited Huddersfield in 1824, fifty-three years after his honoured grandfather had left the place. Upon inquiry he learned that even after the lapse of half a century the fruits of his wonderful ministry were yet remaining on earth. The memorials he gathered together from these survivors of the old congregation are so deeply interesting that I am sure my readers and listeners will be glad to hear them, though in a somewhat abridged form. Mr. Venn's grandson says, Through the kind assistance of Benjamin Hudson, Esquire, of Huddersfield, I saw all the old people then living in the town and neighborhood who had received their first religious impressions under my grandfather's ministry and who still maintained a pious character. They were all in the middle or lower ranks of life. None of the upper class had survived. What I am about to record must therefore be received as the genuine and natural testimony of people of plain, unpolished sense. Mr. William Brooke of Longwood gave me the following account of the first sermon he heard at Huddersfield Church. I was first led to go by listening with an uncle of mine at the door of a prayer meeting. We thought there must be something uncommon to make people so earnest. My uncle was about nineteen, and I was about sixteen, and we went together to the church one Thursday evening. There was a great crowd within the church, all silent and many weeping. The text was, You are weighed in the balances, and are found wanting. My uncle was deeply attentive. When we came out of the church, we didn't say a word to each other until we got some way into the fields. Then my uncle stopped, leaned his back against a wall, and burst into tears, saying, I can't stand this. 
His conviction of sin was from that time most powerful, and he became quite a changed character. I was not so much affected at that time, but after that sermon I couldn't be easy in sin. I began to pray regularly, and so, by degrees, I was brought to know myself and to seek salvation in earnest. The people used to go in droves from Longwood to Huddersfield Church, three miles away. Some of them came out of church together, whose ways home were in this direction, and they used to stop at the first end, about a mile away, and talk over for some time what they had heard, before they separated to go to their homes. That place has been to me like a little heaven below. I never heard a minister like him. He was most powerful in unfolding the terrors of the law. When doing so, he had a stern look that would make you tremble. Then he would turn to the office of grace and begin to smile, and go on entreating until his eyes filled with tears. The next person I saw was George Crow, age 82, of Lockwood, a hamlet about a mile from a town. When I asked him whether he ever thought of old times, he answered, Oh, yes, and I will to the end. I thought when Mr. Venn left that I would be like Rachel for the rest of my days, weeping and refusing to be comforted. I was abidingly impressed the first time I heard him at an early period of his ministry. He was such a preacher as I had never heard before or since. He struck upon the passions like no other man. Nobody could help being affected. The most wicked men went to hear him and fell like slaked lime in a moment, even though they were not converted. I could have heard him preach all night long. I also visited Ellen Roebuck, eighty-five, living at Armandbury. She was very deaf and weak, but when she understood the object of my visit, she talked with great energy. I well remember his first coming to Huddersfield and the first sermon he preached. It was on that text, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. It was as true of himself as it was of Paul. He took every method for instructing the people. He left nothing unturned. He was always at work. It was a wonder he hadn't done himself in sooner. The boys he catechized used to tell him that people said he was teaching a new doctrine and leading us into error. But he always replied, Never mind them. Don't answer them. Read your Bibles and press forward, dear lads. Press forward, and you cannot miss heaven. I also saw John Starkey of Corcliffe, who was eighty years old. As I conversed with him, he seemed gradually to wake up until his countenance glistened with joy. He said, I esteemed Mr. Venn too much for a man. I almost forgot that he was a creature and an instrument. His going away went nearer to my heart than anything. He was a wonderful preacher. When he got warm with his subject, he looked as if he would jump out of his pulpit. He made many weep. I have often wept at his sermons. I could have stood to hear him until morning. When he came up to the church, he used to go around the churchyard and drive us all in before him. I make no excuse for providing these excerpts. They speak for themselves. I feel sorry for the person who can read or listen to them without interest. If such living witnesses to the power of Henry Venn's ministry could be found after fifty years, what may we suppose must have been the effect of his preaching in his day and generation? If the direct good he did was so clear and unmistakable, what a vast amount of indirect good must have been done by his presence in the district where God placed him.
We must not for a moment suppose that Henry Venn's labors in Christ's cause were entirely confined to Huddersfield during the time that he was minister of that parish. So far from this being the case, there is abundant evidence that he occasionally did the work of an evangelist in many parts of England very distant from Yorkshire. We have no journal of his travels, but a close examination of that interesting but oddly arranged book, Lady Huntingdon's Life and Times, clearly shows that the vicar of Huddersfield preached every year in many pulpits besides his own. It could hardly be otherwise. He was on terms of intimate friendship with all the leading evangelists of his day, such as John Wesley, George Whitefield, William Grimshaw, and John Fletcher. These apostolic men frequently found their way to Huddersfield and preached for him in his pulpit. We cannot wonder that as long as health permitted, Venn helped them in return. In fact, he seems to have frequently made journeys through various parts of England and to have labored in every way to preach the gospel as an itinerant so far as his church responsibilities would allow him. We hear of him constantly in Lady Huntingdon's chapel at Oathall near Brighton and at Bath. At one time he is in Bretby near Burton-on-Trent. At another he is at John Fletcher's famous establishment at Trevecca in South Wales. Occasionally we read of his preaching at Bristol, Cheltenham, Gloucester, Worcester, and London. The half of his labors probably outside his own parish is entirely unknown. The truth must be spoken about this. It's useless to try to draw any broad line of distinction between Henry Venn and his great contemporaries in the revival of the eighteenth century. No doubt he had a large town parish, and of course found it more difficult than others to be away from home for a long time, but in all spiritual points, in matters of doctrine and practice, and in his judgment of what the times required, he was entirely one with Whitefield and Grimshaw. He delighted in their labors. He stood by their side and helped them whenever he had an opportunity. When William Grimshaw died, Henry Venn preached his funeral sermon in Luddenden Church. When George Whitefield died, the man who preached the noblest funeral sermon in Lady Huntingdon's chapel at Bath was the same Henry Venn. Some churchmen might think that Venn would have done better if he had confined his labors to Huddersfield and abstained from apparent irregularities. I cannot agree with them. I think that in keeping up close relations with the itinerant evangelists of his day, Venn did what was best and wisest in the days in which he lived. I think his unhesitating attachment to Whitefield to the very end was a remarkably noble trait in his character. It should never be forgotten that the last sermon preached by Whitefield in Yorkshire before he sailed for America to die was delivered in the pulpit of Huddersfield Church. An extract from a letter written by Henry Venn to Lady Huntingdon around the year 1768 will give a very clear idea of the steadfast course of action that the vicar of Huddersfield adopted and the boldness with which he supported Whitefield. It was written on the occasion of Whitefield preaching on a tombstone in the churchyard of Cheltenham Parish Church after permission had been refused to preach in the church. Venn says, to give your ladyship any proper description of what our eyes have witnessed and our hearts have felt within the last few days at Cheltenham exceeds my feeble powers. My inmost soul is penetrated with an overwhelming sense of the power and presence of Jehovah, who has visited us with an outpouring of His Spirit in a very eminent manner. 
There was a visible appearance of much soul concern among the crowd that filled every part of the burial ground. Many were overcome with fainting. Others sobbed deeply. Some wept silently. A solemn concern appeared on the countenance of almost the whole assembly. But when Mr. Whitefield pressed the command of the text on the unconverted and ungodly, his words seemed to act like a sword, and many burst out into piercing cries. At this juncture he made a solemn pause of a few seconds and wept himself. During this interval, Mr. Madden and I stood up and requested the people, as much as possible, to restrain themselves from making a noise. Oh, with what eloquence, what energy, what melting tenderness did Mr. Whitefield plead with sinners to be reconciled to God, to come to Him for life everlasting, and to rest their weary souls on Christ the Saviour! When the sermon was ended, the people seemed chained to the ground. Mr. Madden, Mr. Torbert, and I were very busy in trying to comfort those who seemed broken down under a sense of guilt. We separated in different directions among the crowd, and each was quickly surrounded by an attentive audience still eager to hear all the words of this life. Of such a season it may well be said, I have heard you in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In the year 1771, Henry Venn's useful Yorkshire ministry came to an end. He left Huddersfield most reluctantly and became the minister of Yelling, a small country parish in Huntingdonshire. This happened when he was only forty-seven years old. There were many who blamed him for the step and thought that he should have remained at his post in Yorkshire until his death. But really, when the circumstances of the case are objectively considered, it seems impossible to say that he was wrong. His health during the latter period of his residence at Huddersfield failed so completely that his public usefulness was almost at an end. He had a cough and spitting of blood, beside other symptoms of approaching consumption. He was only able to preach once every two weeks, and even then the exertion made him incapable of rising from his bed for several days. In short, it is very evident that if he had continued at Huddersfield much longer, he would have died. It was right at this time that his friend, the Lord Chief Baron Smythe, who was one of the commissioners of the Great Seal, offered him the position at Yelling. The offer appears to me to have been a providential opening, and I think Venn was quite right to accept it. It's easy to find fault with Venn for overworking himself at Huddersfield, and to hold him up as a beacon and warning to young ministers who are full of zeal and abundant in labors. I presume to doubt, however, whether it is quite just and fair. It was not overworking alone that made his health break down. There were mental causes as well as physical. Nothing, I suspect, had so much to do with his leaving Huddersfield as the death of his wife in 1767, leaving him a widower with five young children. Up to this time his position at Huddersfield had been one of many trials partly from the bitter opposition of many who hated evangelical religion, and partly from the difficult circumstances to which his very meager income often reduced him. As long as his wife lived, though, none of these things seemed to have moved him. Mrs. Venn was a woman of rare prudence, calmness, good sense, affection, and sympathy. She was, in fact, her husband's right hand. 
When she died, such a load of care and anxiety was placed upon him that his health gradually gave way. People who have not been placed in similar circumstances probably cannot understand all this. Those who have had this cross to carry can testify that there is no position in this world so difficult to body and soul as that of the minister who is left a widower with a young family and a large congregation. There are concerns in such cases that no one knows except he who has gone through them. There are anxieties that can crush the strongest spirit and wear out the strongest constitution. This, I strongly suspect, was one main reason why Venn left Huddersfield. He left it, no doubt, because he felt himself too ill to do any more work there, but the likely true cause of his breaking down was the load of care placed upon him by the death of his wife. It was just one of those secret blows from which a man's bodily health never recovers. Venn's own private feelings about leaving Huddersfield are best described in a letter that he wrote at the time to Lady Huntingdon. He wrote, No human being can tell how intensely I feel this separation from a people I have dearly loved, but the shattered state of my health, occasioned by my unpardonable length and loudness in speaking, has reduced me to a condition that incapacitates me for the charge of so large a parish. Providence has put into the heart of the Lord Commissioner to offer this small living to me. Pray for me, my most faithful friend, that God's blessing may go with me and make my feeble attempts to speak of His love and mercy useful to the conversion of souls. At Yelling, as at Huddersfield, I will still be your ladyship's willing servant in the service of the gospel, and when I can be of any use in furthering your plans for the salvation of souls and the glory of Christ, I am your obedient servant at your command. It's recorded that the last two or three months of Venn's residence at Huddersfield were especially affecting. The church was crowded at an early hour when he preached, and vast numbers were compelled to go away. Many came from a great distance before he left to tell him how much they owed him for benefits received under his ministry. Mothers held up their children, saying, There is the man who has been our faithful minister and our best friend. The whole parish was deeply moved, and when he preached his farewell sermon from Colossians 3 2, he could hardly speak because of deep emotion. The parish of Yelling, to which Henry Venn went after leaving Huddersfield, is a little agricultural district on the southeast border of Huntingdonshire, about seven miles south of Huntingdon, five miles east of St. Neots, and twelve miles west of Cambridge. In 1885 it had a population of about 400 people. It would be difficult to imagine a greater contrast than the great evangelist of Yorkshire found between his new parish and his old. Vast indeed is the transition from the warm-hearted and intelligent worshippers of a northern manufacturing district to the simple, indifferent, and apathetic inhabitants of a purely agricultural parish in the south of England. Henry Venn felt it deeply. He wrote in a letter to James Stillingfleet, Your letter found me under great searchings of heart upon the point of beginning my ministry in this place. What a change from thousands to a company of one hundred, from a people generally enlightened and many converted, to a group of people still sitting in darkness and ignorant of the first principles of the gospel, from a house resounding with the voice of thanksgiving like the noise of many waters, to one where the solitary singers please themselves with empty sounds 
or gratify their vanity by the imagination of their own excellence. From a Bethel to myself and many more, to a nominal worship of God. It was a painful change indeed, yet it was unavoidable. With a heavy heart, therefore, did I begin to address my new hearers yesterday. As difficult, however, as the change was to Henry Venn's mind, there can be little doubt that it was exceedingly beneficial to his body. The comparative rest and entire change of his new position in all probability saved his life. Little by little he recovered his health and strength so that he was able to get through the work of his small parish with comparative ease. In short, after going away from Huddersfield apparently to die, he lived about twenty-six more years, to the great joy of his friends, the great advantage of his family, and the great benefit of the Church of Christ. How little man knows what is best for his fellow creatures! If the vicar of Huddersfield had remained at his post and died in his work there, his children would have lost the best training that children perhaps ever had, and the world would have lost a quantity of most valuable correspondence. Men's life at Yelling was remarkably quiet and uneventful. His second marriage, soon after his settlement there, appears to have added much to his happiness. The lady whom he married was the widow of Mr. Smith of Kensington and the daughter of the Reverend James Ascoff, vicar of Highworth, Wiltshire. In her he had the comfort of finding a thorough help and a most wise and affectionate stepmother to his children. They were married for twenty-one years, and she was buried at Yelling. The domestic arrangements and work at his country home were truly simple and edifying. The following sketch, drawn out by Venn for a Huddersfield friend, gives a pleasing impression of the way in which his life went on. You tell me you have no idea how we go on. Take the following sketch. I am up soon after five o'clock. When prayer and reading the blessed word is done, my daughters make their appearance, and I teach them until Mrs. Venn comes down at half-past eight. Then family prayer begins, which is often very sweet, as my own servants are all, I believe, born of God. The children begin to sing beautifully, and our praises, I trust, are heard on high. From breakfast we are all employed until we ride out in fine weather two hours for health, and after dinner we get back to work again. At six I always have one hour for solemn meditation and walking in my house until seven. We then have sometimes twenty people, and sometimes more, to whom I expound God's Word. Several people appear much affected, and sometimes Jesus stands in the midst and says, Peace be unto you. Our devotions end at eight, and then we eat and go to bed at ten. On Sundays I am still able to speak six hours, at three different times, to my own great surprise. Oh, the goodness of God in raising me up! As quiet, however, as Henry Venn's life was at Yelling, we must not suppose that he had no opportunities of being useful to souls. Far from it. He was within reach of good old John Berridge, and the two fellow laborers often met and strengthened one another's hands. Though he seldom came before the public as he did in his Huddersfield days, he still found many ways of doing his master's business and proclaiming the gospel that he loved. The value of his preaching was soon discovered, even in his secluded neighborhood, and he had the comfort of seeing fruit of his ministry in Huntingdonshire as real and true and as abundant as in Yorkshire. Occasionally he preached out of his own parish, though not as often as his friend and neighbor Berridge would have wished. He delighted in the society of the good vicar of Everton whenever he could have it. 
just such a Calvinist as Mr. Berridge is, he used to say, I wish all ministers of Christ to be. Sometimes Venn preached in London, and was not ashamed to appear in the pulpit of Surrey Chapel as late as 1786. His vicinity to Cambridge gave him many opportunities of seeing members of the university who valued evangelical truth, and men like Simeon, Jowett, Robinson, and Farish long testified their deep sense of the advantage they derived from his society and conversation. Above all, the freedom that he enjoyed at Yelling enabled him to keep up a very extensive correspondence. He lived in the good old time when letters were really well thought over and worth reading, and the letters that left the Yelling parsonage are a proof to this day of how wisely and well he used his pen. Overall, the evening of Henry Venn's life seems to have been a remarkably happy one. He had the immense comfort of seeing his four children walking in his footsteps, clinging firmly to the doctrines he had loved and preached, and steadily serving his God. He also had the joy of seeing his son John become an able minister of the New Testament, minister of Clapham, and a man honored by all who knew him. Indeed, it's recorded that there were few texts so frequently on Henry Venn's lips in his latter years as the saying of Solomon, A wise son makes a glad father. Proverbs 10, 1, 15, 20. At the age of sixty-eight, he withdrew almost entirely from the public work of the ministry. His health had never entirely recovered from the effect of his work at Huddersfield, and old age came prematurely upon him. Yet even then, he was never idle. In fact, he didn't know what it was to have a boring or an unproductive hour. His last days are so beautifully described by his grandson in his admirable biography that I will give the account just as he has written it. He tells us, He found constant employment in reading and writing, and in the exercise of prayer and meditation. He often declared that he never felt more fervency of devotion than while pleading for spiritual blessings for his children and friends, and especially for the success of those who were still engaged in the ministry of the blessed gospel, from which he was himself laid aside. For himself, his prayer was that he might die to the glory of Christ. There are some moments, he once said, when I am afraid of what is to come in the last agonies, but I trust in the Lord to hold me up. I have a great work before me, to suffer and to die to His glory. But the spread of His Redeemer's kingdom lay nearer to His heart than any earthly or personal concerns. Even when the decay of strength produced occasional lethargy, this subject would awaken him to a degree of fervency and joy from which his bodily frame would afterwards suffer. I have understood that nothing so powerfully excited his spirits as the presence of young ministers whose hearts he believed were devoted to Christ. About six months before his death, he finally left Yelling and settled at Clapham, near his son. His health then rapidly failed, and he was often on the brink of the grave. A medical friend named Pearson, who often visited him, observed that the near prospect of death so elated his mind with joy that it actually proved to be a stimulus to life. On one occasion, Mr. Venn noticed some signs of death and said, Surely these are good symptoms. Mr. Pearson replied, Sir, in this state of joyous excitement, you cannot die. At last, on June 24, 1797, his happy spirit was released, and at the age of seventy-three, Henry Venn entered into the long-anticipated joy of his Lord. I still have more to say about this good man. 
His preaching, his writings, his correspondence, and the main features of his character all seem to deserve further notice, but I must reserve that for another chapter.